Hey folks, back again. This time we have Ian Seabrook, um, freelance writer, journalist in general, um, and previously editor of Retro Japanese magazine, but probably best known nowadays for um, Hubnut on uh, YouTube, where he celebrates the average. Um, and with that in mind, he's joining us because we are decidedly average. Uh, welcome, Ian. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very well, thank you. That's superb. So I'm just going to dive in straight with our, uh, our first question, which is, as ever, why cars? Why are you spending your time with cars so much? Oh, I don't know. The, the obsession started very, very young. And uh, I would pester my poor mother because at the age of four, I was identifying cars walking down the street. I wanted her to tell me more about them. She knew nothing about cars. She didn't drive. So it was a bit tricky. But I had an aunt who had old cars, Morris Miners and Oxfords when I was growing up so and they were deeply unfashionable in the 1980s so I, I guess that's kind of what helped me develop my niche of going for cars that most people aren't interested in and that is very much my niche yeah yeah very much so um so uh what was your first car um that, that was actually your own um, my parents bought me a mark ii fiesta when i passed my driving test which i managed to gently destroy over the coming months but the first car i actually bought with my own money was my second car and it was a 1984 citroen 2cv and that's uh, an ob yeah that's an obsession that has stayed with me forever yeah it's interesting that we've been doing these podcasts for a little while now since um annoyingly we planned to start doing them before all of the um covid insanity happened and mm -hmm. and suddenly uh that happened and, and uh we were we were been interviewing people since kind of March um, and uh, the amount of people that's first cars or, or one of the first cars was a 2CV is surprisingly large um, I would, would not have thought of it uh, being as many as it is um, yeah well the, they were group one insurance they were cheap to run they are just hilarious you've got the roll back roof you've got the roly-poly suspension the fact you can just thrash them mercilessly all the time they are ideal first car fodder I guess they're also pretty easy to fix up and repair and all, all that kind of stuff for someone that's not done any of that before. Did, did you get stuck in straight away on that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. I had my little toolkit and I would get stuck in. But, um, I mean, even now, sort of many years later, I think it's um, currently 24 years since to the day since I got my first 2CV. And, uh, yeah, I, I still don't really know what I'm doing. But they're very forgiving cars, generally, and I seem to get away with it. <laughs> getting away with it is all you need to do um, mm. uh, so you uh, are still a car journalist um, what mm -hmm. was your what was your route in, into that like before all the hubnut um, well, days the, what were you there, there, there were two things that helped me build a portfolio of work to try and blag my way into the media industry so to speak uh, one was writing for the 2CV club magazine I had a monthly column because um, my friend was editing at the time, uh, Chase Racer, who um, has been about on the, the um, Retroize forum from time to time. Mm -hmm. And um, I was also doing stuff for the uh, what is now the AR Online website run by Keith Adams. And it was eventually through Keith Adams that I got my foot in the door on Classic Car Weekly. And ah, spent so over that... three years on that title. I can say that. So that was your first job was uh, was Classic Car Weekly. Um, my first job in this area yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um were, were you doing anything vaguely motoring related beforehand or were you uh um 
sort of no no out, um, the, 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 the closest it got to motoring was um, a, a few short stints working at car dealers as a van driver and uh, working at an insurance company and that that was as close as i got to um, cars before that point that's uh, that's fantastic so yeah routine via kind of car clubs and you know, occasionally a bit bit of the right networking with the right people get gets you into the right right place. So what what were you first writing for um, Classic Car Weekly? Uh, I I I it all began when I sent a, a piece on spec to Keith, and uh, I said it was a response to a feature Nick Larkin, fabled writer, had written on saloons, and I wrote one about estate cars because I just love estates, and that was my first published piece of work, and and then there was an odd odd bit of freelance after that but um i then became the features writer and would spend many happy days trawling through books to put together features on you know the motoring exploits of people like eric carlson pat moss and uh, the the cars they drove as well and it just absolute joy from doing that sort of work that sounds like an absolute dream that's wonderful yeah yeah it was i mean everyone thinks it's all about the driving cars and yes that's nice but if you haven't got the love of writing and research, then yeah, it's probably not the job for you. No, that that's uh, yeah, I, that does sound like a bit of bit of a dream um, for for us sort of nerdy car people. Mm. Uh, you're um, you ended up as editor of Retro Japanese. So how did that magazine come about? Was were you the um, were you pushing that? Because I know you have an interest in um, so that, that sort of thing. Or was, did they come to you? That all came about through um, um, Phil Whedon, who, who was the um, um, boss at um, Kelsey Media. He, he's always had a strong interest in Japanese stuff. He has a Honda S2000 himself. Um, at the time, Kelsey Media had a Subaru Impreza project car. And um, it, it, it's a niche. He, he could see what was going on. I mean, the growth in that side of things. As the nostalgia kicks in, we get into late 70s, early 80s the Japanese cars were taking over the market. So we could see it was going to be a growth area. And we hoped that title would be able to make use of that. But while, while the interest was there, it's not yet really backed up by industry. The, the, there aren't too many big specialists in Japanese stuff. And ultimately that and um, the difficulties trying to make a magazine um, actually uh, work financially these days meant uh, it came to an end last year. Yeah, it's a real shame. It's a it's a real shame. As you you say, you could see the broadly see a market there for it, but um, mm. it, it was like not necessarily all the right pieces in place yet. And um, uh, yeah, perhaps, perhaps almost almost a little too early, but then also in a very difficult time with uh, with yeah. magazines in general. So um, yeah, yeah, and I I think the late you know we've now lost modern classics magazines, which is oh, far more established. So, um, yeah, it, it is a struggle, a very real struggle. And it's a shame because I love that title because I was able to give a voice to people like Dan Hurst and Eddie Ratley, who, whose depth of knowledge is, frankly, slightly terrifying. Oh, and it's shocking. I, it's I, 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 I loved it to, to proof because I would learn so much every time I read one of their features. So it was really nice to give them a window and an opportunity. Yeah, it was um, it was a great uh, great title, and it was it was nice for for us to see sort of familiar names from from our little world, um, mm. getting a bit of exposure, and people perhaps outside of that seeing the depth of not just knowledge but passion for these things. You know, these guys yeah. are, are super passionate about these cars and have been since before 
the internet went all JDM. It was that they've been there for for years, and it's great that they're about. I'm glad yeah, that and, you at least gave them the opportunity to do that. I think. And you have to be passionate about the Japanese stuff, as, as you well know yourself. Getting hold of parts for cars that were really commonplace sort of 30, 40 years ago, it can be an absolute nightmare. So, yeah, hats off to anyone who owns a, a Japanese classic because looking after them, not always easy. No, no, it's, yeah, it can be, be a labour of love at times. So alongside all of this, um, somewhere along the line, Hubnut appears. So mm. how did that come about? When did you decide to do that? And what format was it in? Has it always been YouTube? Like, I, I just suddenly became aware of you doing this like i've known you sort of for a while kind of thing but then yeah suddenly... let's not talk numbers it's embarrassing yeah that's a, it's a shocking amount of time um but then like suddenly you're you're much more famous even than i and um i don't know when that happened um or why did a... like, how did they all come about it all began with, a, I had a blog called Classic Hub, and Classic Hub was something I set up when I went freelance in 2010. So I left Classic Car Weekly. I was working freelance for anyone who would pay me, but still, I just had creative urges, so I would just write features about what I wanted to write about. And if no one had published them, I'd put them on Classic Hub. And uh, I, I started a YouTube channel then, which oddly began because I had a Nissan Leaf on test and I'd never driven an electric car and I somehow wanted to capture the process. So I just stuck a camera in the car and talked to it. And that started me off with that. So I then did a video on my Land Rover Discovery, on my Daihatsu Syrian, which I absolutely loved. And it was very, very much a hobby. Um, and it was a, a few years ago, I, I decided because I had an interest in classic cars and electric cars, but Classic Hub wasn't appropriate, and the Hubnut name just came to me one day as a sort of an evolution of Classic Hub, so a way to link to that, but be some, somehow a bit more generic. And uh, off we went, and it was always just a hobby, just to make the videos. But as I could see, the magazines starting to struggle, and the pressure editors were on to try and make these things work, uh, I started to think that maybe finding my own solution to videos was the way to go because the bigger publishers struggled to make a profit but i thought well perhaps there's enough profit for a one-man band and uh, it, was, it was only um, february 2019 that i went completely full-time on hubnut so, so I, yeah, I, yeah a year and a half now you've been doing it full-time yeah and I, I guess in the six months up to that i was pushing it really really hard because i was starting to think this is my escape route yeah. And uh, yeah, thankfully, it's been very well received. Yeah, it it, uh, it it's really impressive that you've worked worked so hard at it and, and found your audience. Now, I am I, um, I know some people may know this. Um, I am uh, friends with a certain other YouTube um, car celebrity, a, a chap called Shmi One Fifty, who I've known before. Um, he was famous because he used to work for me or work with me, I should say, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, it was interesting to me how hard it was that he was working at that stuff, even in the beginning, like he was out every single night. And, and you can see also in your videos, you know, you're constantly working. And I, I think it's sometimes hard to get across to people how difficult it is 
and how much hard work it is to build a YouTube channel? Like, were you aware of that when you started going down that path, or did you suddenly find yourself really. making videos every day? You can go, oh, yeah, this is kind of hard it, work. It, it just it just built up and built up, and of course, it's not just the making of the videos; it's dealing with the comments, it's dealing with emails and queries coming in. Um, trying to do business deals because um, I've had sponsorship on the channel at times. The, the, there's an awful lot going on. And and then we started selling merchandise on the back of the website because we realized the YouTube income alone wasn't going to be enough to live on. So um, we, we started doing a few stickers and they sold out in no time at all. Uh, the stickers enabled us to do T-shirts and the T-shirts sold out quickly and everything has kind of built up. And now um, the, the Hubnut merchandise is almost a little business all of its own. Yeah, that this is definitely seems to be how these things build is that you in order to get to the next level you have you sort of introduce something but that then and of itself becomes its own thing. Yeah. Um, I mean we have a a, a car show a business that runs alongside a website now rather than a website that has the odd car show and and mm. it, 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 and, and we do do the and I've got the same kind of experience it's like oh you do this little thing because you want to move up a little bit but then it just becomes it's a whole a whole thing you now have to deal with every day yeah. and it's uh um it it, it can be uh more than a time consuming um but it's Indeed. great I, yeah I, i've helped organize events i know what hard work they are and that's just doing <laughs> one one off not doing it every single year because you don't really get to rest after you've done one you've got to immediately start thinking about the next one yeah always always planning but i, I i'm really uh, like proud not the right word mm. um I, i'm really happy that the hubnut stuff has worked out so well for you because it's oh, given you. you a chance to enjoy indulge your passion for um the uh the slightly more obscure celebrating the average as you say it's uh, in, indeed yeah which i don't think you can do in a magazine i think that that's one of those it's a, one of those weird things that are, are really only works on the internet yeah and in the audience is big enough um out there for it but mm -hmm. it's so diffuse and they're not all going to buy a magazine, but you, everyone will probably have a quick look at YouTube. Well, the, so. the other thing is to, to make a magazine work, you've got to have advertising. And if you're doing a magazine about cheap cars, people aren't going to be attracted. That's not a sexy thing to advertise in, is it? So no. it, it's going to struggle um, on that count. And then, you, and then you're trying to sell a magazine on cheap cars to people who've got cheap cars, presumably because they haven't got huge budgets. So are they going to buy a magazine? Yeah. Whereas and all, you know, YouTube is free at point of use and the advertising, you know, as long as I'm not doing anything controversial, YouTube don't care what I make videos about. So no. in some ways, they're the best publisher I've ever worked for because there is no pressure. You must do this car. You must do that car. And there's no pressure on sales. There's, there's, you know, I, I want to get good views for my videos, but I will still do videos on the cars I want to do. I'm not chasing views. Yeah, I think that that's also one of the, the things that YouTube has allowed people like you and, and you know, the, 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 there's other folk out there in, in their own niche and in, in their own world to just concentrate mm. on the thing that entertains them yes. and hope that the other people that are entertained by that find them and subscribe and, and all that kind of thing. And that, yeah. I think that passion just bleeds through uh, really well on it. Yeah, and it's a great way of finding people who share your passion. You know, I've now got over 60,000 subscribers who presumably have the same outlook on cars as I do, and that's just extraordinary. It's nuts, isn't it? It's great. I yeah. love it. Um, so I would, let's talk about your cars for a little bit, because you have um, an interesting car history. Um, mm -hmm. And you're known for your Invercar um, at the moment, your 2CVs, obviously. But first of all, I want to talk about um, your Alpha 164 V6. Because it seems slightly at odds with all your other cars in that it's kind of 
this sort of executive throaty thing. Um, oh, yeah. And- I mean, it, it was a beautiful car. It sounded absolutely glorious. But you've got to remember, I bought it when 164 prices were rock bottom. I paid £375 for it. And uh, it even had working air conditioning. And uh, it, it, it's one car I should not have sold. But at the time, I didn't understand brake systems. It had a seizing caliper. So I sold it for probably less than I paid for it because I'm an idiot. <laughs> hey, we've, I guess we've, we've all been there. But yeah, we mm. got, got rid of cars that we, we uh, just sort of almost too afraid to fix at the time. Um, Indeed. Uh, how, how was your Alpha ownership? I, I, I've owned Alphas and um, it's always an interesting journey. It was absolutely fine, apart from that brake caliper issue, which was just the same sort of brake caliper issue you'd have on any car. It was just seized up a bit and needed freeing off. Um, I know now. Um, it worked fine. Like, like I say, air conditioning worked. All the electrics were absolutely fine. It, the, the 164s are a very, very underrated car, which makes them prime hubnut material. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. It's, uh, um, yeah, they're, they're a... They're a beautiful bit of kit as well now i think they've aged very well the 164 um, indeed yeah there, there was one at the um the weekend of last year gorgeous red clover leaf but i'm still desperate to get my hands on and do a video on uh i i, I will uh i can hunt that down for you if you want <laughs> oh it's all right i'm already on to the owner it's just that's, that's they're trying to make the logistics work ah uh, yes yes yeah yeah T- tell me about it mm. it's, one thing that's been uh, much easier in lockdown is actually recording podcasts but um also i don't have to work out what i'm doing this friday mm-hmm. or this weekend because it's nothing i'm not doing anything yeah. um so uh come on tell us about the invercar that this is um this is a, a, a an iconically hubnut vehicle um, well, yeah, I the mean, and all that stuff. So. The, the Invercar came at a time. I mean, it really drove growth on the channel because no one had ever done videos on them. But it, it, it basically an invalid carriage built in the 1970s. Mine's a 72. Um, I found it in a field of 14 of them um, in Sussex, and uh, I, I took two of them. Uh, one of which has since been restored by a friend of mine. And uh, yeah, the, the build series on restoring that car after 14 years sitting in a field and getting it back on the road. Yeah, it's been extraordinary. And at the moment, I'm just preparing a highlight reel, which shows some of the adventures I've had in it since getting it back on the road. You bear in mind, it's got a 500cc air-cooled flat twin engine from Austria, bizarrely, um, a CVT transmission, so a belt drive. And uh, yeah, the adventures we've had in it, um, thanks to retro rides meetings, we've been around Goodwood Circuit, we've been up Shelsley Walsh. It's just extraordinary. And people absolutely love it because it's such an adorable little car and such a forgotten piece of uh, sort of very British history. I'm, I'm very glad we've moved on because it is absolutely lethal. Uh, <laughs> driving it in crosswinds is terrifying. And I have actually had 70 miles an hour out of it on the way to uh, the retro rides weekender. Um, on the A23. That, that was sounds, very scary. That sounds like one of the most terrifying things in the world. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. But yeah, I, 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 just, I just love it. it. It does so much more than it should have done, while also being quite a lot rubbish. I think we've come a long way as a society, thankfully. But it's a very <laughs> important piece of our history, and I love having the exploits I have with that car. I, I think it was um, it, it, it's interesting as well with... Um, YouTube and and to a certain degree forums, it's it's novelty kind of rules the day in many ways, mm. and and the Invercar is very much a novelty car. But but out of that novelty, you're able to show, as you say, like th- this was a, a an important bit of history 
for the car industry in the UK and, and just exposing a thing that no one like really bothered to look at very much outside of what I imagine is a small pool of fairly crazy enthusiasts. Indeed, yeah. And um, through that, there's many friends of mine have now bought in the cars, so we're kind of forming our own little society. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it's really good to see newfound interest in this forgotten bit of history. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a, yeah, they're an odd sort of an odd thing. They used to be everywhere as well. I remember when oh, I, was yeah, a, yeah. I was a kid, you could see them everywhere. But uh... Well, this is a remarkable thing. Mine was in service, I think, until 2002, 2003, when the scheme finally ended. And I don't think people realised it went on for that long. No, no. Anyhow. Um, actually, I have a, a question from Dave Smith, the editor of Street Machine, because uh, mm -hmm. we chain we chain our questions through our uh, podcast, going all the way back to the first. Um, and um, it dovetails nicely with this: Have you? Uh, what car have you owned that has earned you the most sort of scorn or derision? Um, given that you have a, a, an interesting array of cars in your in your past. Oh wow! That, 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 yeah, this is a difficult one because I've had about seventy cars, and most of them have been awful. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's worth remembering when I first got my 2CV in 1996, it was a joke car. And, um, you know, even years later, Clarkson was still making jokes about 2CVs. They, they, they were not seen as a serious classic car in classic car circles. They were just a, a point of derision. Um, but I got into 2CVs while they were nice and cheap because of that derision. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's one where... During my time owning them, I've really seen the, the respect grow. And there was a good thing about going to retro rides meets is you you had that respect very early on, even when the classic car world were turning their noses up at two CVs a bit. So uh, yeah, that 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 was definitely one derided car. But yeah, that, you... that's a. I was going to say that that's an interesting change over time. The acceptance mm. of the classic car community to stuff that was thoroughly derided it's like skoda like you you can yeah. you get a, a 1000 mb skoda and that'll happily go to any classic car show now but what 10 15 years ago probably been asked to leave oh yeah if you turned up in a skoda estelle yeah yeah it's yeah the, the world becomes a more forgiving place perhaps over time so remember that uh folks when you're uh if you're starting out and looking at cars and thinking god this isn't cool it will be eventually it will cool. be yeah Probably. Maybe. <laughs> uh, um, so what are you currently driving? Um, the only two cars I've got on the road at the moment are my 2CV, which I've owned for 20 years next month, uh, and uh, I've got a Citroen GSA. They're both C-plates. They're both air-cooled Citroens. So I'm very put much um, putting my trust in the um, Citroen gods at the moment. <laughs> You're, um, yeah, the, the French have a, a habit of turning out kind of interesting cars i'm gonna, mm. gonna gonna use the interesting word again um it, it they're uh they're, they're both sort of technologically interesting um mm. but also a little bit odd i find it does that yeah, attract yeah, you to them the, yeah oh, very much the gsa is like nothing else i mean for years i've been going on that i want a big car ride in a small package and so like, well why didn't i get a gsa earlier but um I think the timing's right now because they're starting to gather a bit of a classic following. So there's better part support than perhaps there was 10, 15 years ago. And uh, yeah, it's a lovely car to drive with completely wacky dashboard that looks like nothing else. Um, all the controls, are, you just get in and you're just like, well, 
where are the column stalks and there aren't any it's all rotating switches and the speedo is a rotating drum as well so it, it's very peculiar but lovely to it. drive love it that's brilliant um have you got anything is there anything you got your eye out for are you happy with those two at the moment uh well i've still got plenty of cars in the shed i've still got my um Deu Matiz. Uh, again there's a car that often gets derided uh reliant fox and I've just got a Yugo Sana, which is probably going to be my winter project to try and um, revive. There are not many Yugo Sanas left. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty to be keeping me busy. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. And I think I need to try and fix those projects rather than acquire more, he said, hopefully. <laughs> it's the constant cry of the uh, car enthusiast. Yeah. Um, so is, is there... Um... Is there a white whale out there for you, a car that you kind of really desperately would like but have never been able to pin down? Um, yeah, I think, um, well, it's not so much pinned down as a Ford, but obviously <laughs> being a Citroen man, for many people, the Citroen SM is the absolute pinnacle. And you know, what, what could be a bigger nightmare, a car with um, hydraulic pretty much everything, uh, but a, a Maserati V6 engine that sounds like a race car, and uh, kind of needs looking after like a race car engine and uh, just fabulous dramatic looks this 17 foot long uh, really a two-seater because the rear seats are so rubbish it's just you have to question what they were thinking at the time but they are marvelous yeah they're a, they're a beautiful bit of kit i occasionally see them come up for sale um in the states they seem to be popular in the states somehow because there mm. always seems to be at least one or two for sale out there yeah, um, they they did sell quite a few over there somehow. Yeah, I, I don't understand what their thinking was and all the people mm. that were buying them, what they were thinking, but apparently they were popular and occasionally eye them up because the, the prices are a little bit cheaper than they are in uh, in Europe, I guess, because of the uh, supply. Um, mm. uh, and then you remember, you just remember everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be a great way to lose a lot of money fairly quickly, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah perhaps best not do this. <laughs> but that's what makes channels like um, Cold War Motors fascinating. Is um, he's, um, I think he's got a couple of SMs, but he's sort of covered the reviving of and um, just prove that if you're willing to just dig in and have a go, it, it's all very different, but it is possible. Yeah, I, I think um, there's there's. Props nowadays, there's almost like a better world for these kind of cars because mm. whilst there's only perhaps a handful of people that know what they're talking about, you can definitely get in touch with them. Whereas back in perhaps the late 90s, that would not have been a possibility at all. And I think that's what's helped with the Japanese car scene, actually going back to people like Ed Ratley. Mm. Is if, you, if you do get stuck, you can find Eddie or, or someone else that knows what they're talking about and yeah. ask them a question, whereas that wasn't always the case. No, no. And... Uh... I mean, you can now buy parts directly in Japan and stuff like that, but it just wouldn't really have been possible. No, it was, uh, it, it was uh, yeah, it, it's incredible to me how those people kept things going. And it's the same with like all, all the, the guys with the uh, the Eastern European stuff that mm. um, like managed to keep going all these years because they got a, a similar kind of um, scene going on that's quietly in the background. Um, but now... Uh, like it's all become a lot easier to, to get parts. I have a, a friend of mine who has a, a bit of a, a, a Yugo fetish and uh, mm. that's become a little bit easier over time, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to plan a Serbian holiday so I can go get some parts for my Sada. Yeah, bring back in your, in your luggage. Mm. Um, so uh, let's have a look. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a, 
we've got a selection here. In fact, actually, Dave Smith sent me two questions, and I was going to pick one, but actually, I'm going to pick both. Um, uh, what forgotten car do you think is least deserving of its obscurity or indifference? Ooh, well, yeah, a few years ago, I would have said the Citroen 2CV, but times have changed and people are recognizing just how good the engineering is in them now. Um, so, yeah, ooh, that's a really difficult one. I, I, I think, Pete, you know, we've mentioned the Eastern Bloc stuff, the uh, Trabants and Vartbergs. Um, again, another car derided for a very long time, but actually the engineering, especially given the constraints of the times, um, I think they're actually very impressive cars. Yeah, it, it's impressive how many are still on the road as well. Indeed, and it, it, that, that's largely due to their sheer simplicity. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that, that having gone from the Citroen SM to the uh, to the Trabant is, I think, uh, um, yeah, for, from one of the most complicated cars ever built to uh, uh, one of the simplest. And there's a there's mm -hmm. a reason one of those is plentiful on the road, and the other one you don't necessarily want to touch with a barge pole. Yes, yeah. Um, you're recently you did um, I think uh, what would be my choice for that would be the um, Isuzu 117 Coupe um, oh, you did yeah. on your channel I'm, I'm a big fan of those cars and I don't think they deserve to be as obscure and odd as they are no no and I was absolutely blown away by the driving experience because it, it's an incredibly competent car and a real pleasure to drive and I wasn't necessarily expecting that because much as I love Japanese stuff, especially 1960s, early 70s, they were still some way off the mark a lot in terms of dynamics. The, the handling would often be quite woolly. The ride would often be somehow crashy and bouncy at the same time. Uh, but yeah, a very competent package. Yeah, I I, I would, would concur with that. I found that um, in the UK that, or, or European cars were sort of built to have this dynamic driving experience, um, mm. almost regardless of what they were, because of the way they were getting reviewed. Um, and then the Japanese cars were just quite competent, but not necessarily entertaining, which I think is part of the reason why they get derided so much, like like My Little Sunny and stuff. Um, yeah, uh, but I, I think it's worth bearing in mind that the Japanese weren't just influenced by Europe. They were very much influenced by America, and they knew yeah. what worked in America. And to be honest, cars like the earlier Cedrics um, would have been very well received in America because they behaved like American cars. But obviously, yeah, that, I, that, that's not going to appeal to Europeans. I, I think that that's actually a really interesting point. That the that they basically built European-looking cars that drove like small versions of American cars, and it, it's mm. uh, it's it's an odd mix that sort of slightly wallowy ride um, in a in a small European car. Yeah. So, how are you picking out cars? I mean, as I say, you got that Isuzu, which is just magic to me. Um, how are you kind of? deciding what is going to go on the channel and, and so and so much of it i mean i will go hunting for certain cars that really tick my own boxes but a lot of it is people offering cars and remarkably that isuzu lives um about 10 miles away from me and mm. uh so, so, sometimes that happens there's some amazing stuff um hidden up in the hills of wales i'm really annoyed i didn't get to do um a mazda unos cosmo before um the owner sold it um it just time and circumstance were against me i featured it in retro japanese magazine so i did get to drive it and what an extraordinary car that is 
uh, enormous executive coupe for somehow sounds like a Porsche 911 and a Wartburg at the same time <laughs> with that triple rotor engine. Just absolutely crazy. But I didn't ne- never got time to go back and do a video on it, and uh, I, I very much regret that. But yeah, it's a case of people offering cars and I'll go, oh yeah, that's very much something I want to do. Um, and, and then just trying to get the logistics to actually do it. So when I recently went to New Zealand and Australia, uh, I was offered cars all along the way, but there were some massive gaps. So I didn't get offered any Australian Chryslers to drive other than a Neon. So I, there's regret there, but I didn't experience more of that. I didn't experience more 1970s Holdens and Fords. It all tended to be 80s, 90s. So, uh, yeah, sometimes it's frustrating because you don't always get offered what you actually want to drive. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's it. There's only a certain amount of time in the day. So if people are offering cars, I guess you're, you're more likely to take that given that you're only going to be, like the Australia trip, you're only going to be there for a limited amount of time. So yeah. you kind of take what's offered rather than having time to hunt stuff out. Um, Indeed. Can, so yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a combination of the two. Like like I say, there are cars I'm definitely hunting for um, that I definitely want to do videos on. And there's cars in the past that have very much been of that nature, or, or even buses. I drove a Leyland National bus to mark 30,000 subscribers, and that, that was major box-ticking exercise. Fortunately, one advantage of being an, an old person, so to speak, is that I can drive a 30-year-old bus on a car license so that was yeah. a very interesting experience but that was one i had to try and find someone who was willing to let me an inexperienced car driver drive their bus uh, how was the uh like i say i'm sure the videos out there but but how, how was that for you like it was uh oh was it, it, it was amazing it but it, it was so difficult to actually try and do the commentary actually do the video bit whilst trying to drive a bus i mean buses are huge and we, we thankfully did it in Lincolnshire on roads that were very well suited to driving a larger vehicle because it's, it's all truck routes, really. Um, so, but you're still having to concentrate a lot. You're trying to squeeze through towns. It was, it was a fascinating experience. That is unbelievable. <laughs> so good. Um, you drove a tractor as well, uh, I, I saw. Um, yeah, recently. yeah. Yeah, I stopped with someone who let me drive a tractor around in New Zealand. That was uh, quite an interesting experience as well. Didn't realise how complex they are. You know, each gear has sort of four sub gears. It's uh, extraordinary. Yeah, I, I saw um, a map of a gearbox in. Well, it was a truck gearbox, but I'm, I'm guessing the tractor is similar. So you you put it into like first. And then you'd put it into like first, first, and then second, yeah. first, and then third, first. It's like, oh my god, this is insane. But yeah, the, the four sub gears almost behave like little overdrives, so um, you don't have to use the clutch or anything. You just pull the lever, and you're into the next fraction of that gear. It, uh, yeah, baffling. That's, that's wild. That's a uh, mm. li- little bit of extra respect for those guys. Um, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Next next you, time you're getting held up by one, going, come on. Yeah. <laughs> You can just go. I know you got sixteen. Just think of the engineering instead. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, the yeah. engineering, <laughs> or the slightly overloaded trailer, which is what we have around here at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, fair bit of that that time of year. Yeah, you're um, you're also you did a, a Porsche nine eleven. Which I, this is what I quite like about your not quite like. This is what I love about your channel is you, you're you're doing sort of this obscure Isuzu and. That the, mm. you've got your 2CV, like there's an ongoing thread through it all and all of this kind of thing. But then it's not so, um, 
almost blinkered. Like I, I think people that can be into sort of quote unquote unloved cars can be mm-hmm. at the expense of every other experience of a car. But you're also there. You're driving the nine eleven stuff. So that was that was great to me. How was your, how was your nine eleven experience? Yeah, that that was a really interesting one. I, I stayed with a chap um, ever so nice um, called Ian in um, Wellington. And uh, he let me drive his Chevrolet Corvair, his Audi TT, and his Porsche 911. Huge fan of the channel, despite owning those three cars. And uh, But I think the 911 really qualifies for Hubner because you look at the package as it was in the 1980s, and it, it's just ridiculous, really. This air-cooled um, six-cylinder engine slung out the back. The, the, the whole feel of the car is very old-school, very classic very 1960s yet here is a car that is still lauded today and uh, certainly gives a very unusual driving experience there is nothing else that drives like a 1980s 911 yeah they they put the engine in the wrong end for a start it's all Mm. horribly wrong (laughs) um there are yeah they're a a very as you say they're a kind of unique a unique capsule of time that seemed to catapult all the way up to, well, I guess 1998 when they went a bit more water-cooled and sort of redesigned it a little bit and put the engine in a slightly more proper position. Um, uh, Whereas the the older ones, yeah, all the way up until then seemed to almost like doggedly be determined to do this thing. It's Mm. like, you're not going to dissuade us. We're doing this. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's amazing that they just stuck with it. It's... um... And, and fair play to them because it's it worked really well. But yeah. that that car really didn't make a lot of sense. Just driving around normally, it's got a clunky gearbox and um, it doesn't actually feel that punchy. It was only when I got it onto a twisty road in the hills that I really understood what the car was about because it just corners insanely well because there's no weight over the front wheels. So the steering's nice and light and the traction you've got coming out of bends with that rear engine. Yeah, it's just amazing. You just have to be a bit respectful of it. But yeah, it's a yeah, car yeah. you have to drive to really understand it. it it's weird, isn't it? So um, uh, long-time sort of listeners of the podcast will know I have a, a 996. It's the Porsche no one likes. And um, uh, it's very nearly back on the road now. Um, mm. But I, I have no ties to Porsche or 9, 911s or any of that stuff. I didn't grow up wanting one. I will make a video at some point explaining why I have this stupid car. Um, <laughs> but I love it now. I, it, mm. it, it, yeah, it's one of the four-wheel drive ones, so just because it's a little bit more tractable, it's, it's, it's quite nice like that. But as you say, until I drove one, until I, until I had one, I wasn't, I didn't get it, and now I get mm. it. I'm not like an insane Porsche person by any stretch of the imagination, and I, and, I, and I don't think I ever will be. But it's like, ah, okay, yeah. Like you have like a weird light bulb moment, I think, with them, um, which, which is which is quite quite nice and and i guess as you say it's getting the right car on the right road so um yeah. is there any other sort of weirdly light bulb experiences like that with vehicles you've gone ah actually this is this is kind of more than i thought it was well the isuzu was definitely one of those that was definitely better than uh, i expected uh, but weirdly it's actually the other way around it, it it's i mean you talk about right car right roads the amount of times they end up in the right car on the wrong roads like trying to drive an Alfa Romeo once, uh, sorry, um, GTV V6 around Sydney. And it was just awful because I couldn't extend the engine. I couldn't experience the handling. It was quite crashy over the poor road surfaces. I was just like, I, I'm not seeing the best of this car. No, it's a shame, isn't it? Uh... But when you only have a window of a couple of hours, you're very much restricted by the geography. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a real shame. I think that, as you say, like you, you've got a window in which you get to experience a car, and mm. getting it in the right situation isn't always possible in that time. Like some cars are purely brilliant on track, for example, or mm. or in a very twisty country road. Um, but but if you don't get them there, you don't kind of necessarily understand them, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. Actually, fourth-gen Honda Prelude, I had one of those a few years ago, only the two-litre automatic. But I remember I was a bit late trying to meet some friends um, in the Midlands. And uh, just to add to my woes, I ended up taking a wrong turn, trying to take a shortcut. And I ended up driving down these beautiful, sweeping Shropshire roads. And that car really came alive. The steering is some of the best power-assisted steering I've ever encountered. And uh, that was one of those moments where just like, oh, yes, I finally understand this car. And uh, the rest of the time, you're getting annoyed because it's a crashy ride, uncomfortable seats. But, yeah, on the right roads, that car was an absolute dream. The, the Prelude is another one of those series of, of oddly Japanese cars that I mean, mm. the Europeans did a little bit of. But like the, the Cosmo as well, it, it's the, they had these sort of big executive coupes that were just very, I don't know, very of the time. I, mm. I, I quite liked the, the whole series of them. Like you had the, the Sora and Nissan did the Leopard. And I guess the BMW E31, if I get my numbers right, um, kind of counts in that, the, the, eight, the 840 and all that sort of stuff. The, the mm -hmm. sort of big executive coupes that don't really seem to exist anymore. Um, yeah, but the Prelude was always small. It was a, a oh, small yes, executive coupe. It, it attracted a very niche market but you know writers like the legendary ljk set right he absolutely adored preludes because he understood what they were all about yeah i think a lot of people probably wrote them off because the japanese can't do handling so um it'll be rubbish and never got to experience just how great they are yeah i, I think they're getting a little bit of a resurgence all these sort of radwood people and, and all that kind of stuff mm. like like the, the the 80s and 90s uh preludes because they're so perfectly encapsulating of an era of um, both cars and Japanese cars in, in general. I, I think that, that that's quite nice. That, actually, that's one of the things that um, I quite like in a car, a car that encapsulates its era wonderfully. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, going back to Honda again, yesterday I was driving around Swansea in a Honda Accord Aero deck, and just the styling is just so 1980s. And uh, for me, it was the absolute high point of Honda around that time. Because there's superb engineering, it works very well just as an ordinary car, but actually it's quite nice to drive from an enthusiast point of view. And uh, it, the, the looks are just screaming 1980s. No, and very 1980s look at the future. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's another thing I like. I like cars that look like they were trying to be from the future, but they're like from the future of the 1960s, which yeah, like doesn't quite... It didn't quite happen, but they, they I don't know, they still look like, space, like the French cars, obviously, all look oh, yeah. like spaceships. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the DS, when you when you actually sit down and look at a DS, especially around the back with the indicator trumpets and everything, it's just an insane-looking car. It's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, it's wild. This, the CX as well, actually, that, that sort of mm. followed, which I feel is a little bit more maligned than the, the, the DS, but we'll, we'll, oh, we'll yeah, have definitely. its day. Yeah. Um, just as complicated, though. Oh, yeah, just as complicated, if not more so, with the um, Duravi self-centering steering. Um, the, the, the first 10 miles in the CX are probably some of the worst miles you'll ever do. But once you, once you <laughs> understand it, once you get used to the weird steering, uh, they are extraordinary cars.
Yeah, I'll, uh, one day maybe. I like the um, the uh, the CX um, estate just because they're just insanely large. Just yes, yes. I had, I had a familial because obviously uh, a, a chap who's um, on his own with what um, one um, partner really needs an eight seater. Uh, yeah. So I, I had one of those a few years ago, and it, it was a remarkable car. But um, yeah, I started to feel I was pushing my luck with it, and the electrical issues started, and I thought, right, time to get out of this one. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, it's knowing when to pull the ripcord on 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 certain cars. The uh, yeah electrical issues on French cars and Jaguars, and um, uh, I, I generally find um, weird fueling issues on um, Italian cars. And it's time to just mm-hmm. go. No, this is fine. This can belong to someone else now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so what's the most surprisingly good car um, you've had? Something uh, which I guess we kind of touched on with the, the Isuzu and, and stuff, like mm. things that the sort of, I don't know, you didn't have any expectation for, but then you came away going, oh, you know what? That was all right. Um, oddly, the Ford Puma is probably one. I haven't actually done a video on it, but I did get lent a Puma by a friend. And um, everyone goes on about, oh, it's a great car, but... I, I kind of get a bit annoyed by that. I've driven a Ford Focus, and I thought it was okay. It didn't blow me away. But the Puma uh, was just extraordinary. It just begs you to absolutely thrash it constantly. Um, absolutely remarkable car. And I, I, even though I knew to expect it to be good, it was somehow managed to be better than I expected. It's interesting how much that's flown under the radar because, mm. like, I mean, I'm aware of the, of the Ford Puma, and I always thought the Cougar was a better looking car sorry for mm. people um and, and i thought that's that was much maligned but yes. the um it's interesting that you yeah how good the the, the puma is then oh, i have to investigate a little yeah bit further. I, I, I think people write it off because it's got cutesy looks they think it's going to be like a Vauxhall tigra it's like the mx5s I and mean, you still get people claiming mx5s are hairdressers cars and you're like yeah. well clearly you've never driven an mx5 quickly because they, they are a joy yeah, well, I um, I learned the other day. One of my favourite bits of trivia is um, Christian Konigsegg that owns Konigsegg. Um, mm-hmm. His summer car is a Mazda MX-5, and oh, he wow. loves to he loves to drive it because it reminds him that they've got to build cars that are fun and not just fast. Mm. Yeah, that, that that is my big problem with with faster cars. Um, I, I think the frustrations came out nicely when I drove a Honda NSX um, a couple of years ago. Um, I think I genuinely had more fun driving the chap's Honda Accord Coupe first gen than I did driving the NSX because the NSX isn't a fun car to drive slowly. It's only fun when you're absolutely on it. But by the time you're absolutely on it, the speed is getting definitely the wrong side of naughty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I think, as I said, there's cars that you can only really get the full enjoyment out of on track otherwise you're mm. basically constantly looking in your rearview mirror for for the police and or just being an idiot on the road which we yeah don't appreciate. But, but the, the mx5 isn't a particularly powerful car no so it's not the power that's making it an enjoyable experience it makes nice noises but i mean you look at the speedo and you, you're not going particularly quick and that's where the enjoyment comes from i think that there's a phrase of, of slow car fast which i think yes. is it's a great, great little phrase for for stuff like that. That you're going to get more enjoyment out of those things. And sure, oh, yeah. I don't know, your mate might have some 400 horsepower, thousand horsepower, whatever fire breathing thing, but it's mm. not going to be as much fun. Like on a no. day to day basis, it's not as enjoyable. Um, no, the yeah, amount, the amount yeah. of fun I've had in my two CV over the years is extraordinary. And um, if you go back to the Retro Rise weekend of last year, the people trying to tackle the auto test in really powerful cars. 
and sort of struggling because by the time they've got the turbos spooled up, they're at the next cone and they've got to slam the anchors on. Whereas um, my mate in the um, 2CV van, you yeah. know, on, on the door handles every cone and um, the crowd loved it. They were having an absolute whale of a time. Um, and there you go. It's a 602cc engine with 29 brake horsepower. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah, it just, it, it, again, right, right car, right place. But, but also you don't need oodles of power just to have fun with a car. And then no. sometimes, sometimes it will work against you. So uh, mm. that, that's definitely, um, definitely, I think, uh, an appreciation. On the subject of MX-5, um, my mum had an MX-5. An exciting mm-hmm. story about my mum's MX-5, which I'm now Ooh. going to share with podcast listeners, is um, she sold it in 2007, and it is now in the Mazda Heritage Collection. And oh, I wow. Know that, I know this because it turned up on the cover of Classic and Sports Car. I was like, that's my mum's car. It's not the white one, is it? <laughs> it is the white one. Oh, well, yeah, I have driven that one. <laughs> You've driven my mum's car. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's a lovely example. It is really nice. Low, low mileage. Yeah, she, she bought mm. that. I think she was the second owner. She used to come and pick me up from Sainsbury's in that um, mm-hmm. when I used to work in Sainsbury's. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, I'm g- going to try and try and get down to to Mazda Heritage. I really want to have a look at their um, Cosmo because that's my that's mm. my dream car. The, the, the oh Cosmo yeah, I, I've tried talking them into letting me out in that, but understandably they're a little reluctant because they are one of those cars you definitely don't want to bend or ruin it. No, no, I think um, I think somehow I'm going to have to find the funds to buy my own, but they seem to be going up and up in value faster than i'm finding funds (laughs) yeah but yeah i I have got a video on the mx5 because mazda invited us to silverstone to drive all the generations back to back which was a very interesting experience but how um, much have they changed Uh, i I guess that's spoiling the video but um yeah i mean the 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 main issue is that i i don't really like the later ones because they're full of technology they're heavier and uh just can't match the even just the exhaust note we changed between the mark one and the mark two the mark two felt very muted to drive afterwards even though it had slightly more power so i, I really do think a mark one mx5 um is definitely the car to have and i think collectors are starting to cotton on to that as yeah Russ, definitely Russ claims them and the numbers dwindle yeah i i think that for a car that was completely ubiquitous in some manner it's mm. going to be one of those of oh you don't see those anymore, um, yeah. and the prices will go up. Um, mm. Sadly, my my Sunny is one of those cars that was com- completely ubiquitous at some point. Um, they disappeared off the road, but um, sadly the prices haven't gone up. So no, <laughs> I need to get myself an MX Five as an investment. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I, I think a lot of Japanese um, saloons, um, especially in unfortunately entirely original condition that they are starting to fetch strong money yeah seen sure. a lot in the world of toyotas especially yeah toyota's definitely gone up a lot more than um i, I think most of the other brands uh mm-hmm. like, it, it's surprising what what you can pick up at, at what i would say is reasonable money and you know we're, we're not talking the sort of five hundred thousand pounds you used to be able to pick them up but they're not kind of classic car money for for a lot of these mm-hmm. things and then just occasionally you'll see a Toyota for sale and it's £35,000. You're like, oh, okay, that's, that's yeah. happened then. But, but even even Karina E's, uh, really nice examples, they're starting to fetch strong money. You're like, this mm. is insane. Yeah, yeah it's, it, 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 it's wild. I, I think that you can't regret not buying these things because sometimes you don't, you couldn't really predict it, but other mm. times you, you kind of think, I really should have bought a couple of them and <laughs> just yep. held on to them for a bit. Uh, 
Ah oh, well, what what? Uh, sorry, I had I had the the obvious uh, the obvious counterpoint to the surprisingly good cars, which was what's surprisingly bad. Ooh, um, I, I I think, and I reflected on this when I was recording the video yesterday. Vauxhall, um, the FE Victor, not really a high point. Um, oh. Partly because I think the FD is an amazing looking car, and the FE just didn't quite follow on. But also, it, it sort of represents how Vauxhall was really losing its independence entirely by that stage. The structure is mostly an Opal. Um, but th- there are cars that somehow managed to just be fairly uninspiring to drive. And c- compared to, say, a Mark 1 Granada, uh, yeah, they, they just don't quite feel on it. And I hate saying that because I'm always championing the underdog, but... It, it, it's one of very few cars I struggle to get that excited about. And I was looking at a beautiful example yesterday, one I've actually done a video on quite a few years ago. And I'm just thinking, I don't really have any desire to drive that car again. That's interesting. It's funny, sometimes you can almost chart like the rot in the British car industry sort of mm. through the cars themselves. So like I know yeah. there's lots of stuff happening at the boardroom level and... and uh, in industrial level and within the country societally as well and all this kind of stuff but you can kind of chart it through the cars sometimes they gradually become less and less inspiring in, yeah. in, in in broad swathes like some companies still manage to keep it going but others you're like oh yeah no you can see how this all fell apart yeah but Vauxhall in the 1970s was definitely struggling I think the HC Viva just didn't really move the game on from the HA and HB before it and I think a certain amount of it is just laziness it's just like oh this car is selling well so we'll just restyle it a bit and sell more of them but the rest of the world was moving on you look at the mm-hmm. development of Toyota Corollas and uh, the, the Datsuns of that era they were coming on in leaps and bounds and the British motor industry wasn't really no my, my dad told me a story uh, the other day he had a Morris Marina for um, a, a few years a car much maligned um, but mm-hmm. uh, this, this was sort of I guess mid to late 80s um when they were sort of rock bottom prices that, that was my, my dad's sweet spot and um he it, they broke down somewhere in wales in it and the the guy that came to help them was um from from birmingham and uh he went oh yeah you need to replace this bit and my dad was like i had you know chatting to him like, how do you know, know that so quickly He's like oh, i used to work on the production line and they came out of the factory with the wrong part just because yeah. we had we had them in stock so we fitted them and mm. we, were t- we told them that it wasn't the right thing. And they were like, well, we've got them in stock and we need to get rid of them. And it, it was that kind of really um, brought home. I'm sure that's not an unusual story from that era. Either. Oh, no, no. I but, mean, I, I was reading on Keith Adams' excellent AR online website just the other day about um, the Maestro, which was effectively kept in production purely because what else were the factory workers in Cowley going to do? Once they'd started making the new Rover 200 at Longbridge, and uh, it's just insanity, really. Yeah, just mad stories. Oh, there's, I mean, there's many books covering it, but it's a super interesting kind of microcosm of the breakdown yeah. of an industry. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I could talk for hours on the subject, and um, you probably want to stop me. <laughs> no, I'd never want to stop you. It's fascinating, though. This, yeah. is, this is the sort of thing. It's... Um, but uh, as I said, it, the fact that you can track it through the cars as well—I like, didn't mm-hmm. know that about the Maestro staying in production. That's that's absolute madness. <laughs> that's yeah. insanity. But you also have to think in in the larger terms as well. Like German car manufacturers and Japanese car manufacturers were eating up this market because these people yeah. were being crazy. 
Well, yeah, and it's a real shame because you look at Rover's relationship with Honda and that benefited both companies enormously. But the the downside was Honda learned an awful lot during the 80s from their involvement with Rover. And and then they started scaling back on it because it was like, oh, well, we've learned what we need to know now. Thank you. And uh, we're able to make their cars much more European-centric from what they learned. Yeah, it, but it's almost a shame that Rover didn't take lessons away about building super reliable, easy to manufacture cars. Yeah, yeah. Gr- gradually descended. Oh, British car industry, why? Why were you like this? That's mm. uh, a shame. Uh, right, let's uh, let, let's let's move away from the vagaries of the British car industry. We, we're we're sort of running down. We got got another five five ten minutes here. So. Um, okay. You you drive a lot. There's so many questions I've got to ask you. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go for for road trips because that's always a nice thing for people to take away. So so mm-hmm. what do you, what what do you what do you look for? You you drive around the place a lot, and I'm guessing mainly mm-hmm. you're driving to feature cars and stuff. But but is, is, do you, will sometimes you take a just, route? Yeah, sometimes it's just for the adventure. Like driving the two CV to Croatia last summer was. Um, very much um, just just for the, the crack of driving my 2CV to Croatia. I, I did find cars and test them along the way, but it was primarily about that particular adventure. And uh, I bought a Ford Fairmont in New Zealand and drove it all around both islands. That, again, was very much for the adventure, just for the box ticking, really. And mm. uh, I, I just love road trips, just that every day something new. And uh, it, it can be stressful when you're trying to find somewhere to stay, something to eat and not run out of money. But it, I, I just love the romance of the um, the adventures and the people you meet. It's just extraordinary. I liked, um, we, we interviewed Amy Shaw, uh, a photographer, uh, a little mm-hmm. while ago and talked to her about road trips because she, she does a few of them. And she said the difference between um, a road trip and just going for a drive is the element of danger. Like you could break yeah. down in the middle of nowhere or, as you say, run out of money or, or something. I, I oh, like yeah. That idea. In New Zealand, there were, there were times I was on the West Coast, which is notorious for um, its inclement weather. And I was getting trapped by road slides. And uh, you're just like, where am I going to be sleeping tonight? Where can I actually get to? And uh, that, that that became seriously quite scary. Wow. Well, yeah, you get you get get the 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 story. I guess uh, mm. no, no one no one made a story that particularly interesting by just driving to the shops and back. So, uh, well, quite. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, you don't you don't have to go gallivanting off to other countries. The adventures I've had driving around the UK in my Invercar. I took the Invercar back to the factory it was built in. And remarkably, the chap who runs the garage that's in there now um, did his apprenticeship at the factory. So he was able to talk about the cars. He was able to sell me some new old stock spares he still had sitting on a shelf. That's amazing. And you just think, if you don't go out there and have these adventures, you don't get to have these utterly remarkable experiences. Yeah, yeah. You you come back with a story, and that's... that's... Mm. The, the one, whether you share that or not that doesn't matter like it, it it's it, it's the growing of the story that came out of the road trip i was going to ask how meticulously you plan your road trips but from the sound of getting trapped and not knowing where yeah, you're going to sleep yeah, I, and I, running I, out of money not very I, i'm not a planner <laughs> i mean I, I was generally booking airbnbs perhaps a day or two in advance because you can't leave it too late with an airbnb because these are normal people with normal lives they're, they're not hotels you can't just turn up unannounced so you have to give a couple of days notice but yeah, I, I find that makes it more fun in a mm. way. 
just just yeah. to only work a couple of days ahead and say, oh, I'll probably be in that area in a couple of days. We'll see how it goes. So you've got, got a destination and, and I guess a block of time. You're probably a little bit freer than most people in that you are. You are mm. what you are. You're a self-contained unit, but um, mm. you, you've, you, you've still got other responsibilities in your life. So like when you did the Croatia trip, did did you know how long that trip was going to be and then just work out what you were doing along the way? or? Oh, yeah. Or, I, booked, or, I booked the ferry out and the ferry back. And uh, there was a five-week gap between the two. And um, I didn't really know. I had a vague idea of going to an event in France and to the Netherlands. So, uh, yeah, I, just, I spent several weeks just driving all over the place, really. It was brilliant. That, that sounds like an absolute dream. That's, that is superb. Um, I'm going to... Just throw in, as I tend to towards the end, um, a couple of my emergency questions. Uh, not mm -hmm. that I needed them here. Um, what is the fastest you've been in a car? Uh, the fastest I've been is 130 miles an hour in a Dodge Viper on a supercar driving experience, which I, which I booked after I crashed my Subaru Impreza and realized I had no driving skill whatsoever and uh, decided I actually needed some. That's, that's a very kind of interesting that also comes back a little bit to that right car right road and also right ability mm. i think probably needs yes. to go in there um you know the the, the the there's always a temptation to want the really fast car but like if you're going to end up backwards in a hedge or if you're a bit more sensible and you've taken it on track and end mm. up backwards in a sand trap um, well, it becomes an issue for um journalists especially classic car journalists you're expected to um, sound really knowledgeable on these cars and what they're like on the limits, but you, you don't get to drive them on the track. You only get to drive them on the road. So, um, yeah, you can't really go around pushing the limits, especially in older cars, because, mm. uh, yeah, the, the potential for catastrophe is rather large. Yeah, I guess guess it's worth... Um, that, that's, a, that's a good tip for journalists, particularly if people entering the field or, or, or wanting to get into stuff. Learn how to drive cars properly. Um, yeah. go, go on an advanced driving course... Um, or if you're feeling particularly flush, I believe Mira do a like super advanced driving course that they use for training. Yeah, well, even when I went to that Mazda MX-5 driving day, they, they had someone, we were in the latest MX-5 on track, and they had a racing driver who could teach you how to get the best lines and where you should be on the brakes, where you should be on the power. That was massively useful. It, 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 yeah, that, that sort of stuff is it, great. I, I know a lot of... Um, track days and stuff do that and it's almost worth doing those in your normal car because yeah. you're used to the car you know the car but having someone explain to you how to get the most out of it is um yeah it's often surprising as well you 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 think you're a good driver everyone thinks they're a good driver yeah and until it goes wrong but i, I did a track day last year in a mazda 323f 1.5 uh, at silverstone again uh, at Japfest, and uh 90 brake horsepower, and um, I was having an absolute riot because all the people in the fast cars would be fast on the straights, but then they were all, you know, very ginger going around the bends. But I was absolutely going for it, tires squealing every bend because, you know, it hasn't got enough power to get you into trouble and uh, it's just fairly safe handling. So, yeah, go for track day. Don't, don't think, oh, I need to get an Impreza to go track daying. No, no, just go in any old hatchback. You will learn so much. Yeah. And and it and it's good for you. I think it, it it's good for you to understand where those those limits are. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and you can still crash even without power. I saw yeah. a, a bog standard Yaris um, suffer lift off oversteer and spin off the track. So uh, yeah, you you can learn 
very, very quickly. And at least in the Yaris, you're not actually going to be going that fast. You're probably not going to go smashing into a barrier or something. No, no, exactly. Uh, the other excitingly humbling experience um, uh, I, I had uh, was I went to Goodwood and they had a slot free in their afternoon BMW experience thing. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I, I was there for a meeting and they were like, we've got a slot free. You know, it's there and we would like to fill it. And they gave it to me cheap, which was nice. Um, oh. So I just, I so I just stayed and did this. It was a very nice treat you get occasionally when you when you organise these you know, car shows and stuff. Makes mm, um, up for the lack and, of sleep. It makes up, yeah, a little bit. And, and I, I sort of drove this car, and you got the instructor with you, and you, you drive around. It's a really good experience. I, I thoroughly recommend it. Any, anybody and, and the, all these supercar experiences and stuff—they're good fun. I, I, I enjoy them. So the, the racing driver's giving me instructions on going around Goodwood, and then they drive the car. And you think you're a quick driver and you know what you're doing. Yeah. And then they're like three, four times as fast as you. And all they're doing is the same thing you're doing, just much, much quicker. And it's, yeah. but, it, but it's interesting. It, it, it's, really, it's a really good measure um, to remind you sometimes that whilst you think you're a good driver when you're out on the roads, um, you probably could be a lot better, unless you're one of these guys, in which case you can... Indeed, Definitely, and yeah. <laughs> with that Mazda at Silverstone, I very quickly learned that a car that felt wonderful on a twisty Welsh road felt a bit at sea out on track. It's mm. like suddenly it just feels out of its depth, and that's a very interesting experience as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, go and go and new cars. And again, I just want to point out this is one of the other things I love about you and your channel is you embrace everything. So you have mm. you like somebody might put you in that whole sort of festival of the unexceptional kind of pigeonhole but you aren't you're you're everything and i love it so um yeah, yeah i'm a car enthusiast but I, I do tend to stress stray away from powerful stuff just hmm. because i find it so hard to enjoy i guess it's because i'm used to low powered cars so i'm used to being able to exploit every bit of power those cars have on the road and you put me in something with a v8 and i'm, I'm suddenly i'm getting annoyed because i'm hitting the speed limit in second gear i'm thinking well what's yeah. the point of all this power i can't use most of it so uh, yeah, I, I, like, like you say, it's the less is more really when it comes to yeah. power. Yeah, definitely. Particularly in the UK, our roads are quite small, um, and mm. uh, um, but also like, there's so many other people cover all that stuff, and they're all right. Yeah. You well, know, yeah, you, if, you if mentioned like Shmi already. I'm, I'm, I'm not yeah. ever going to set myself up as a Shmi rival. He's got no. his niche, and I've got mine, and they are very, very different worlds. And, and that's uh, but, the beauty uh, of YouTube is that we can play exactly. our own niches. And that's what I love about YouTube, like that the, you've got people that like whatever it is they like and they can mm. just put it out there and hopefully find an audience or not. Like they're just happy to put it out there. You know, I mean, we got we, we, we don't we do not have a lot of subscribers, but we still put stuff out. Yeah. And it, you have to do it for the enjoyment. I did it for years purely for the enjoyment of doing it. I, I didn't think even a few years in, but it was going to one day be a full time job. Um, you have to do it because you love doing it. And if you're you're going into YouTube thinking purely commercial, you're just going to end up disappointed because it took me six years to get to a stage where it was bringing in a reasonable income. And even, uh, yeah. even that is far from uh, you know plentiful. It's not a bountiful amount of income. It's kind of just enough to live on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so for, for you have to go into it because you love doing it. Yeah, for for benchmarking, um, we made four pound last month out of YouTube. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, I know I'm gonna maybe buy some crisps. Um, yeah, I, I think it took me nine months to get my first payment because they won't pay you less than sixty pounds, or they wouldn't at the time. 
So it took me nine months to earn my £60. And I still remember the excitement. It's just like, oh, wow, I've actually earned this. And, you know, I'd spent hours and hours and hours building up videos and putting them out there. And um, so, so per hour, that was not a good payment. But no, it was no, exactly. just the first step to where I am now. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. You have to you have to put these things out there for um, enjoyment to begin with and then stick with it for uh-huh. enjoyment. I mean, we've got professional videographers working with uh, retro rides and mm-hmm. you know we, we, we've we got our we got our um our subscriber base and they seem to enjoy the videos and we enjoy doing them but like we, we're not it's not our day jobs uh, by any no. stretch of the imagination no. and that's fine because yeah some like you might hit the magic thing or you might suddenly as you said find yourself in a position where you're like actually if i hammer this now i can get to that next next bit mm-hmm. which is exactly what um uh, tim did with the uh, shmi 150 he got to a point where he was like hold on if i do this a lot more i'll get to there and actually yeah. that that's my monthly salary that i get from this job so mm. i can quit this job and then concentrate on it even more and now look at him it's insane uh, yeah and, and and th- the beauty is it is so easy to do because the technology is so Simply just use your phone. I mean, I, mm. I now use an action camera for most of my recording or a proper camera occasionally. But um, so much of my channel was just recorded on mobile phones. Yeah. And the fact I could be at a show, I could do a live broadcast to the world through nothing more than my mobile phone. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. And and also content content is king, I think. Oh, that's, yeah. That, that's what, what kind of works um brilliantly um on your channel and sort of others as well is that it is as you say it's just recorded on a phone you don't need all the technology yeah. and all that stuff yeah you just... i mean if you're doing top end stuff this is another reason i stray away from the top end stuff if, if you're doing the really nice cars people want to see you know petrolicious style stuff mm. applied to them if they're million pound cars but for the sort of cars i do it's fine but i, I yeah. can't I, i've tried doing stuff on jaguars and it hasn't been that well received because it's not polished enough for that audience. Yeah, yeah. So I think, my, my approach works yeah. for my cars. Definitely. That, that's, a, again, really interesting bit of... Sorry, we're going forever now, but I don't care. Um, it's, a, it's a podcast. It can go on for as long as it wants. Um, exactly. the, um, I, I find it interesting. You kind of need the right level of polish for what you're doing. Mm. Um, and... Um, I think that there are videos out there that are massively over-polished and over-produced yeah. for the subject matter because they see these really well-produced petrolicious type things. I mean, we, mm. we do. We, we're not far from that sometimes. As I say, we, it, it's naturally simply because the equipment we have and, and the people we've got filming with us. But Simon that, that works with us just goes to shows with his um, little GoPro and mm-hmm. just records it on that. And it's, every bit as good as us with our gimbals and our um sony's and canon cameras yeah and, and all that again it, it's partly a commercial decision is but mm. i can't afford to have a small team it no. the numbers don't work and this is why it wouldn't work for a publisher to do it because you need so many people involved to make a, a really good um clean and concise video um whereas i can knock out my videos really really quickly so i can do a lot of them and uh, I, I try and do as much editing as I can on the camera to try and record just what I need. So I'm not having to spend hours sitting in the edit suite because it just doesn't pay well enough to justify that. No, that's and, the thing. You, you want like a, a sort of an hour edit for a 20-minute video and, and then yeah. you're, you're done. Yeah, and, and that's about where I am. So my stuff isn't very highly polished, but I've discovered that 
people don't mind that. They're not expecting TV standards of production. No. So to a certain extent, you can get away with it as long as the content is good. And, and actually, sorry, to, to, to bring Tim up again, for years he used a um, handicam that he got as a birthday present. Like mm-hmm. even when he had like a, I think up to the, nearly the point that he had a million subscribers or something, it was just a wow. birthday present, a handicam that he had, and he'd edit on his mm. computer, and and that was proof to me, even at the time, that it was purely content. And much as yeah. I, I, I love doing our sort of highly polished, highly edited videos that we do, um, like the stuff we did at SEMA last year and all that, and we had intended to do a load more of them this year at lots of UK shows, which never happened. Yeah, that went slightly wrong. Yeah, a yeah, little, little bit wrong. Um, it isn't, that isn't what necessarily works. It's just what we enjoy doing and we enjoy making that product. So that's what we're going to do. But actually, as, as, to, to not labor the point, but you don't need all of that. You just need a, um, a, a voice and a, and a subject and a, a mobile phone and um, and the work ethic and the enthusiasm for it. Because as you point out, yeah. you could be doing this for, for years and not make anything out of it. You should ne- never necessarily start a YouTube channel with the idea of making money, I think. No, no. I started it very much as a hobby and thought, oh, well, if I can earn a little bit of money from my hobby, so be it. And yeah. thank- thankfully, it has built up to where i am today and i'm, I'm very grateful for that and I, I mean i'm assuming you're still growing because you, you're uh um I, you you start popping up in more and more places i find um yeah uh, yeah yeah it, I, it, it's still growing up uh, i think we've just hit sixty three thousand subscribers so uh yeah it, it's it's still a, a growing channel and the number of views is going up and yeah it, and what, what i love is the community that's built up around it and it's it's a nightmare trying to keep up with the comments but it is so enjoyable to do because I, I just love that feedback loop. I didn't really get that feedback loop with magazines. You get perhaps a couple of letters sent in every now and then, but now everyone is instant with their praise or or their derision, which is often deserved. But um, yeah, it, it's really good, and the, the the vast majority of my comments are so overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, that's nice. It it well, you know, you, you're you're working in a niche that's only going to attract people that are probably enthusiastic about that niche so mm. and more than likely are happy to see that car being featured because it's not being featured anywhere else well quite uh, yeah so that, that, that's wonderful right we should definitely stop this at some point otherwise um I'm yeah, not, yeah i'm gonna be able to get another cup of tea i need definitely mm-hmm. definitely that, need that another desperate times yeah <laughs> um thank you so much ian um always a pleasure talking to you um i'm sorry we haven't been able to see you this year because yeah it's um, been slightly frustrating in that regard but um, circumstances beyond our control yeah yeah well hopefully beyond our control otherwise one of us is in proper trouble (laughs) um so uh yeah thank you for coming on the uh the podcast um podcast listeners um i do not know who is on the next one it might be chris pollitt who is um uh, a mutual friend of ours so uh that is the plan anyway but that sounds um, a good plan to me yeah we we, we love chris but um be, been uh, tricky to nail down both of us seem to be either away from home um at alternate times so um mm-hmm. it's he, he it, is it, a busy boy he is a very busy boy um but yes thank you ian um for for coming on and um hopefully we will see you at a show and we will um get you on some video at some point as well yeah that'd be lovely thank you very much Cool. That's that. Excellent. That was superb. I enjoyed that yeah. a lot. 
it, it's weird doing i mean you, you've done some interviews as well it's, it's a little bit weird doing them in that you kind of it's hard you've got to get into a conversation quite quickly and, um, yeah, yeah, and I had very mixed experiences with mine. Um, I mean, you chat to someone like Paul Cowland, Johnny Smith, they are I mean, talking professionally what they do, so it's very easy to engage and have a conversation with them. But yeah, yeah. I, had, I had a chat with um, Aging Wheels over in America, and uh, that that was a bit more stilted. It was a bit more difficult to get the conversation.